Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Hey y'all, it's Justin Richmond. Today I'm super excited to share something with you that I've been working on with Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Sedlam for about the last year and a half. It's called Miracle and Wonder. Conversations with Paul Simon. And it's Malcolm's new audiobook, Cold from 30 Hours of Conversations He and Bruce Had with Paul Himself. In this book, Paul breaks down his musical evolution from the doo-wop he loved as a kid to the folk music of his teens and early adulthood, all the way up until the newest music that he's making today. There's tons of unheard stories in here and lots of raw moments with Paul remembering how he wrote some of the most famous songs in his catalog. We're sharing with you the prologue and chapter one of the book. And if you like it, go check out the other nine chapters at MiracleAudiobook.com, or you can also listen on Audible. I hope you enjoy this exclusive excerpt of Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon. You know, listen to this story. This is quite amazing. I took a trip on the Amazon, and we stopped in this village. It didn't even have any roads and there's a girl who's sitting in there, and she's practicing a nylon string guitar. So I listen for a while, and then we say to her, and I say, I know a South American song, and I play. And she says, I know an American song. I say, really? Yeah, she goes... 
What are the odds? <laughs> what did you say to her? There was nothing to say. What am I going to say? I wrote that song? You know, <laughs> yeah. In the middle, middle of the Amazon. It's so completely out of the realm of possibility. You know? Yeah. That's Paul Simon talking to me and my friend and colleague, Bruce Headlam. A moment I never believed could happen. Months before, I met Paul Simon for the first time in a little Italian restaurant in Manhattan. He arrived early, no entourage, no publicist. He was wearing a Yankees cap and jeans. In person, he's unassuming, direct, funny in a slightly wry New York kind of way, youthful. It was hard to remember that he had his first hit before I was born. I'll admit, I was starstruck. I've been a fan all my life. The very first pop music I ever remember hearing was Simon and Garfunkel. It was 1970. I was seven. My family had just moved to Canada from England. We had a record player, but no records. My mother went to the public library and checked out two albums, a Peter, Paul, and Mary record that I've largely forgotten, and Bridge Over Troubled Water, which I've never forgotten. And now, 50 years later, here he was, having lunch with me. I asked him, what do you think of sitting down and having an extended conversation about your career? You know what? I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand up. He liked the idea. It's going to be better. I think this is going to be a no contest, but let's just check the two guitars against each other for sound. How would you describe the difference in the sound of the two guitars? How would you? I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not the guy to ask. <laughs> I enlisted my oldest friend Bruce Headlam to help with the interviewing because Bruce knows a lot more about music than I do. And because way back when I was seven and I first listened to Bridge Over Troubled Water, I listened to it with Bruce. It seemed like the best of karma to invite him along. What, what do I think? I think, I, think the first one, I think the second one is the Martin. And the first one is your favorite guitar. Is it Gurian? Yeah. And you, which one did you like, one or two? I prefer two. That's interesting. It's funny. On everything you played, I preferred this until you, until you did the finger picking. And then I actually preferred the Martin on the finger picking. So there were three of us. Me, Bruce, Paul. Well, you know what? We'll do a take on one and then we'll do a take on the other. Okay. And then we'll see. We met nine times, first in Hawaii, way up in the mountains, in a tiny little studio in what used to be the fruit cellar of a ramshackle house perched on the side of a mountain. I mean, look around this whole place, you'll just see, everything you see is like a, an odd sound. Even that little box is a cajon. There was a pit bull who greeted us enthusiastically each morning. The rumor was that Mick Fleetwood had recorded there once. To, uh, when will I be loved? Will I be Can loved? we play a little bit of When Will I Be Loved? Then, after a break of a few months, we met again in a cottage in Paul Simon's backyard, joined by his engineer, Andy Smith. Simon and Garfunkel, they kind of... We'd listen to music, and Paul would play and tell stories. 
Each conversation lasted four, sometimes five hours. Do the... Yeah, sure. This is a really good one. Shake it very gently, just to create a cloud. Simon turned out to have far more energy than either Bruce or I. I have no anxiety about running out of ideas. You don't have that at all? No. I think another idea? You want another idea? Okay, here's another, here's another idea, you know? I'm reminded of the line from the poet Delmar Schwartz, who once drove cross-country with his friend William Phillips. William drove until I was exhausted, then I drove. I never had a problem with phrasing, because there's always like a metronome clicking in my head. And I know where it is, and my body usually moves to it. Paul talked until we were exhausted. Then we talked. Isn't, I feel like that's your musical sensibility, is honesty un, with an undercurrent of... Am I being ridiculous? Or do no, you think- that's, that's true. What follows is not a biography. It's not an A through Z account of Paul Simon's life. There are at least two very good biographies of Simon out there that will do that for you. This is a musical biography, a discussion of his songwriting, his craft, an examination of the sources of his extraordinary creativity. How do you get there? How do you make yourself feel that chemical high that you feel when you make something that you like? In our time with him, Paul talked about doo-wop and Queens and his dad and a million other things. What he thinks of all the different cover versions of his songs, specifically Aretha Franklin. It felt to me like it wasn't even my song. Like I gave it up for adoption or something. About the countless people he's collaborated with over the years, Art Garfunkel, of course, his childhood friend, and his recording engineer, Roy Halley, who has worked with him almost from the beginning. With Paul, it's creativity. Adding colors where appropriate. I don't go crazy, but if I come up with a, with a really nice color, he'll nine out of ten times love it. The first part of this book is an argument about what makes Paul Simon special. When we call someone like him a musical genius, what does that mean? Can we be more specific about how experience and culture and talent and family combine to make music that endures? A big part of my thinking is trial and error. It's all trial and error, and there's no reason to be upset about the errors. Then, in the middle, comes the story of Graceland, maybe Simon's greatest accomplishment. Part of the reason that I was able to write songs that were not overtly political was that the sound of what was going on was joyful. Could that album be made today? I'm not sure. We prefer our artists these days to stay in their own cultural lane. But Simon didn't, which is a good part of what makes him such a fascinating figure. And look at what he produced. I knew that I had to go to South Africa to get it right. I learned early on that you can't ask musicians to write in somebody else's handwriting. The final part of the book is about later Paul Simon. The work he did in his 50s, 60s, and 70s, when most musicians of his stature have resigned themselves to leaning on their old hits. He kept going. Why? How? There are times when you say, oh, don't change, I'm happy here. Stay right here and I'm having a good time. Let's just stay right here. But it's like, I'm off. Nope, I'm gone to the next part. 
Throughout the book, you'll hear from other musicians who have played with Simon over the years or just love his music. Hello. Hi, Malcolm. Renee Fleming. Hi again. Roseanne Cash. Oh, hey, Malcolm. Herbie Hancock. Sting. The idea of walking off to find America. You know, that's redolent of Huck Finn and um, Tom Sawyer. Or Kerouac. Picaresque American novels. And then we have something special. A piece of music Paul was working on while we were talking to him for this book. A piece called The Seven Psalms. Something as personal as anything Simon has ever made. But most of what follows is just Paul Simon. Mrs. Robinson wasn't really folky either. Mrs. Robinson is uh, a little snatch of blues. Singing, talking, arguing, teaching. That's a lick that's not too different from... See the girl with the diamond ring. At the end of every session, he would always ask, should we meet again? And we would say, yes. Over the course of these long sessions, we had the experience of sitting just a few feet from a maestro. If you've been a fan of his music, as I have, I think by the end of this book, you'll see him in a new light. But wait, you haven't given us your feelings on these two guitars with respect to this song. Well, I know that this guitar is recorded better, you know? Yeah. If you know very little about it. Well, you're in for a treat. Slip sliding away Slip sliding away You know the nearer your destination The more you're slip sliding away Well I know a man He came from my hometown he wore his passion for his woman like a thorny crown. He said, Dolores, I live in fear. My love for you is so overpowering, I'm afraid that I will disappear. Slip sliding away. Slip sliding away You know the nearer your destination The more you're slip sliding away And I know a woman Became a wife These are the very words she uses To describe her life she said a good day, well it ain't got no rain She said a bad day is when I lie in the bed And I think of things that might have been Slip sliding away Slip sliding away Destination the more you slip sliding away. 
And I know a father who had a son He longed to tell him all the reasons For the things he'd done He'd come a long way Just to explain Kissed his boys, he lay sleeping And then he turned around And he headed home again Slip sliding away. The information's unavailable to the mortal man We'll work our jobs, collect our pay Believe we're gliding down the highway In fact, we're slip-sliding away remember how the song was constructed? Can you recreate that for us? Chapter one, the mystery. Mm, well, first of all, it's this kind of picking, so that tells me what time it was. Sometime between 1964 and 68, that's when I was playing this, this style, and afterwards I stopped using it so constantly. Our conversations with Paul Simon usually began with a song. We would suggest one, or he would. He would talk about the song, sometimes sing a little bit of it, or we would play the original recording and he would break it down as we listened, like a color commentator on a football broadcast. So... How would you describe that style? This is, I would call this uh, Travis Picking. One of the days we met, we started with the boxer from Bridge Over Troubled Water. I'm starting off as a, with a narration that could be me. I'm just a poor boy, though my story's seldom told. 
I squandered my resistance For a pocket full of mumbles Such are promises Simon's song reconstructions were always meticulous, exacting, as if he had just written the song the day before, not half a century before. I could understand beginning, I am just a poor boy, though my story seldom told. It's kind of typical of, of the way I begin some songs. You know, I, I try to find a way to begin the story. Now when I sing it, I don't sing that. I sing. I sing. A poor boy Story seldom told Squanders his resistance So now I'm talking about You know, it's in the third person Because it doesn't uh, seem authentic to say I'm... I can't say That I am just a poor boy I'm not a boy and I'm not poor So (laughs) What can I say, you know But I could tell a story about that And people would know, of course, that It was once applicable to me. But that verse has two kind of outstanding lines. Stories seldom told, I squandered his resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. That's the first one. Pocket full of mumbles is a nice idea, and I think it kind of came out of a pocket full of marbles. And maybe I said, well, there's no use to say marbles, so I'll say, oh, mumbles. Oh, that's better, you know? Pocket full of mumbles, that's a nice, you know, nothing. Such are promises. All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Mm -hmm. That's the really good line of the... Maybe the whole song. The quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. Paul Simon is one of the two or three greatest English language songwriters of his generation, or of any generation for that matter. And typically, when confronted with achievement on that scale, we shrug and say, oh, that person's a genius. But that word genius doesn't tell you anything, does it? It's a label, not a description. It doesn't help you understand the scope or the origin or the character of someone's accomplishment. To listen to Paul Simon is to be struck by the mystery of creativity. How did he do it? And what can we learn from how he did it? Of course, he wasn't just going to tell us. We would have to listen. Then I go back to... uh... Storytelling, when I left my home and family, oh. Left my home and my family, no more than a boy in the company of strangers. In the quiet of the railway station, running scared. So I probably wrote that song in England, if I'm saying railway station, because we say railroad. Laying low, seeking out the poor quarters where the ragged people go. That was somewhere, because I remember that I wrote these lyrics on the back of an envelope on a plane. You don't still have that envelope, I hope. I have that envelope. Oh, you do? Good. Yeah, actually. It's one of the few things that I have of when I wrote. But interestingly, I never wrote stuff down on 
pads or paper, you know, which I started to do later. But all of those songs are just written in my head, not written down. And even that one, I guess I was thinking about it, it was sitting on a plane, looking for the places only they would go. Then, la, la, la. And this is what's interesting to me. La, 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 la. I always intended to write lyrics for that section. I just couldn't think of what the chorus should be. So I was just singing Lai La Lai as a space holder. But then I never could think of any lyrics and I kept it. And it's so fortunate that that's what I did because when I sing that song anywhere all around the world, people sing Lai La Lai, which takes you back to a, a deep truth about songwriting, which is that we love to sing nonsensical sounds. That's just a kind of deep human pleasure to sing that. You can think of tons of songs that have that, where you just sing Tura Lura Lura, or if you go way back into the English folk tradition, you know, follow it all, diddle all day. And so Lai La Lai serves that purpose, and people sing along, and there's a communal atmosphere that it evokes when I'm singing it in front of a large crowd, and that is part of what makes it anthemic. When you get a lot of people singing together, it's a very powerful, very powerful feeling. Time and again, we would land in the same place. After he had described the why and how and where of his songwriting, we would still be left with questions. Do you consider that a folk song? Yeah, I would say it was folky, 60s folky kind of thing. Uh, this, that kind of finger-picking, that's, uh, that's out of the folky. All of that stuff is That would be what was the acoustic folk movement in the U.S. and in England. If I had asked you when you wrote that song whether you considered yourself a folk singer, what would you have said? No. No. We're used to our creative geniuses having clear identities. Martin Scorsese is an Italian-American filmmaker from New York who has made films again and again about the intersection of those two worlds. Stevie Wonder, who is one of the few American musicians who can be said to be a true peer of Paul Simon's, is a black Motown singer, child of Detroit, who works within the overlapping African-American traditions of R&B, funk, gospel, and jazz. In both cases, the art tells you something critical about the artist— If you listen to a Whitney Houston song or an Aretha Franklin song, you can tell with absolute certainty not just the ethnicity of the singer, but maybe even the denomination of the church they attended as a child. Because there is absolutely no question that they both emerged from the black church. But Simon is different. 
is really hard to locate sometimes. He writes one of the great folk songs of his generation, but when you ask him, did you consider yourself a folk singer? He says, no. I bet he'd have been interesting. Oh, he'd have been so interesting. interesting. Yeah. So interesting. This idea, this mystery of Paul Simon's origins, goes beyond the boxer and beyond whether or not Simon falls within the folk tradition. Let me give you another example. It involves one of Simon's favorite singers, a gospel legend named Claude Jeter. Oh, Claude Jeter. The Reverend Claude Jeter. Oh, you don't know him? So, can you tell me a little bit? Oh, about my Claude God, you have to know him. You have to know the Swan Silvertones. Maybe I have an album here. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have one right here. Oh, this is perfect. Did you ever hear Oh Mary, Don't You Weep? I've heard the sign. I don't think I've heard this version. Well, this is where Bridge Over Trouble Water comes uh, from. Let's play it. Yeah, yeah, let's play it. Now listen, if I could right now, I want to tell you that I surely would now. Perfect groove. This is not Jeter yet. This is the other lead singer. You'll hear him when he comes in. There he is. That's Jeter. Wish I had somebody to help me call me. There it is. That's a phrase that's in gospel, you know? Uh, come, it comes out of the Bible. I'll be your bridge over deep water if you trust in my name. And... Yeah, that's all, Mary, don't you weep? That's what started it all. Listening to that record with Simon was a big moment for me and Bruce. As Paul mentioned, Mary, Don't You Weep provided the spark for Bridge Over Troubled Water, the gospel masterpiece Simon wrote for Art Garfunkel. But Jeter, uh, he, that falsetto, he's got a great, great, unique falsetto, probably the best falsetto in gospel. And uh, of course I was looking for any opportunity to do a duet with him. Of course he was looking for an opportunity to collaborate with Jeter. And that came up with uh, Take Me to the Mardi Gras. Take Me to the Mardi Gras would become one of the signature songs on There Goes Ryman Simon, Paul's second solo album after the breakup of his partnership with Art Garfunkel. It was recorded in 1972 in a legendary R&B studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Simon wrote Mardi Gras with the Reverend Jeter in mind for the falsetto part. So uh, we, we got together, and I showed him the part and let him sing whatever he wanted to. And then we went down to Muscle Shoals together, but flying first into uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And then it was like a two-hour car ride to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And during that time, I would ask him, you know, so what was it like on the road with a gospel quartet in the 40s into the 50s, playing in the segregated South, and uh, his stories were fantastic. You know, there should have been a biography of Reverend Jeter. Paul Simon, known for chart-topping folk songs, now in Alabama with a gospel luminary. 
Did you ever feel, when you're sitting down with someone like Claude Jeter, how does it feel when you're investigating another musical tradition? Do you feel awkward? Do you feel, I mean, what's the kind of emotion? Well, I'm not in my mind investigating a musical tradition. I'm, I don't think that way. In my mind, I'm talking to an artist who I really admire and respect. You have to keep in mind that I'm, my father was a musician and I was raised in a house where there was always musicians around and there was always great respect for musicians. So I felt a kind of a comfort, didn't really feel awkward, but a, a little sense of awe. Did you go to Muscle Shoals deliberately seeking to shake up your sound? No, I don't go to shake up. I go to where I, what, what I'm interested in and where I want to play. I, I don't think that way. I'm going to shake up my sound. I got to do this for a change. I'm gonna, I, don't, I really don't think that way. Notice how Simon corrects me there twice. He wasn't investigating another musical tradition because it didn't feel like another musical tradition to him. And he wasn't deliberately trying to shake up his sound. He was just following his ear. Simon wanted to record in Muscle Shoals because he had heard a number of songs produced there, like the Staples singer's classic, I'll Take You There. Muscle Shoals studio was fantastic because it was an old warehouse for gravestones. It was like a cemetery place. So Southern Gothic, it's fantastic. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and the bathroom was like right in the studio. So if you had to use the bathroom, you know, well, you couldn't do a take or anything because it was like you're flushing and it was right there in the studio. Also, the thing that was great about them was that that was their studio. That was their sound. You'd come in, they'd flick on the switch and they were ready to go. It wasn't like we got to do an hour of uh, getting the drum sound. They had it. They had all their sounds. You know, everything was mic'd properly. Everything was amped and you got the Muscle Shoals sound. But Simon wanted more than to just replicate the Muscle Shoals sound. I did use a, a New Orleans band, the Onward Brass Band. Alabama, gospel, the Muscle Shoals sound, and a New Orleans brass band. They came up from New Orleans, and in order to get them, we drove to Jackson, Mississippi, and went to Malico Sound, which is like one of the really great anecdotes. Driving there, we stopped at a gas station. We say we were lost, you know. Uh, do you know where Malico Sound is? We say to the gas station guy, he says, I'll tell you what, you take that third road, go about two miles up, come to a golf field. You go past there about a mile and a half. You make a U-turn, you come back, and then you make a right turn. That's right there. So then we said, well, why can't we just make a left turn when we come to the golf field? Uh-huh. He said, well, you could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying that ever since. Well, you could do that too. Can you see now why Paul Simon is so hard to locate? A Jewish songwriter from New York City, who at that point, in the early 1970s, is one of the three or four most famous musicians in the world, drives from Huntsville to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, with Claude Jeter 
an ordained minister and black gospel legend, to record a song with a group of acclaimed R&B musicians and a New Orleans brass band. It's Barry Beckett. And what's the song? Take Me to the Mardi Gras. Come on, take me to the Mardi Gras. Which, by the way, has a Jamaican reggae guitar group. That's uh, Jimmy Johnson. It's like Jamaican, you know? Five separate traditions colliding effortlessly. Musicians all the time borrow from each other and from different traditions, of course. The Rolling Stones began life as a bunch of suburban English kids imitating the American blues. Janis Joplin was not a product of the Mississippi Delta. She was the daughter of an oil and gas engineer from Texas. But with Paul Simon, five traditions layered one on top of each other, New York City Jewish, Jamaican reggae, New Orleans brass band, Harlem gospel, and Alabama R&B, that was the Paul Simon mystery that we started with. Here comes Jeter. And I will lay my you know, he's the, the great falsetto singer in the gospel quartets. Mm-hmm. That's like what he always said, you know, I never pretended to be anything other than falsetto. By the standards we use today to judge authenticity in an artist, that they are true to their identity and tradition, Paul Simon is inauthentic. But how can that be? How do you become one of the most beloved and influential songwriters of your generation if you appear inauthentic? That's the question we'll get to in the next chapter. Very sweet record with incredible talented people in there. Muscle Shoals Band, a real brass band of, you know, I mean, those are old cats from New Orleans. They weren't kids. What do you think Claude Jeter thought of you? Um, I think he thought of me as, as a good guy. And as I said, you know, there was always this rumor that I was going to, which I didn't know of, that I was going to give him a Cadillac yeah. at uh, this church up in Harlem. But I didn't know of that, know about oh, the rumor. Lost, Otherwise, I would have given Such a him. lost opportunity. You could have absolutely. rolled up in some... Oh, absolutely. I really wish I, had, <laughs> I, wish I could, could go back in time and do that. If you enjoyed this excerpt, go order the book now at MiracleAudioBook.com or it's also available on Audible. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music. 
the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says, we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.